Hi everyone, welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. Jody Glidden was already entrepreneurial as a kid in the 1980s in Fredericton. In elementary school one year, his parents went on vacation to Bermuda. He had nothing to do for two weeks, so taught himself how to use the family computer. Later that year, he created a piece of software that won the science fair. When he was 14, he started selling hockey cards and other sports cards and made enough money to buy a car that sat in the driveway because he was too young to drive it. A couple of years later, he started an arcade and pool hall, getting his mother to co-sign a loan. I kept creating things on computer, he says, at the same time as I was attempting things in business, and I just never brought the two of those things together. Until much later, of course, Glidden went on to work at and found several tech companies. Ultimately, that led to the launch of IntroHive, a software company that now employs around 350 people in the Maritimes, US, Europe, and India. The company's product is a platform that helps salespeople and businesses automate routine tasks related to their customer relationship management systems. Launched in 2012, IntroHive software is now used by companies in around 100 countries, and its revenue nearly doubled during the pandemic. The company recently announced that it secured a $100 million investment led by PSG, a Boston-based investment firm that backs middle market software companies. That investment piqued my curiosity. I wanted to learn more about the Interhive CEO who had been so entrepreneurial from a young age. I hope you enjoy my chat with Jody, who now lives and works in Miami. Morning, Jody. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Good. Where do I find you today, Jody? Uh, I'm in uh, Miami, actually in, in Miami Beach, just kind of like uh, right next to Miami. Right. I, 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 like I said to you before we started out our chat, I'm, I'm officially jealous now. Yeah. I, I spent uh, five days in Miami Beach a few years ago on a you know a last minute vacation, and actually it was my fiftieth birthday. Oh, really? Oh, I'm remembering that now, and uh, absolutely fell in love with the place. Yeah, I, I came down here expecting. Um, to, well, I first bought a vacation place down here with, with a friend, and um, and so we came down and, and did a vacation um, during during my week. And it ended up, uh, I, I just, you know, fell in love with the place and so did, uh, so did my family and everything. So we, we ended up deciding to stay. Oh, that's great. And so at the time where you, where were you living when you made the move to Miami beach? Uh, Washington, DC. You were in DC. Okay. Yeah. So most of the last, most of the last 20 years or so I've been in the U S I was, I had a company that was acquired, um, which brought me to San Francisco and then I moved back to Fredericton. Then I, I, I started another company uh, where our our aim was to sell primarily into the federal government. Uh, so so I moved to Washington D.C. and uh, and then after we sold that company, I moved down here to Miami. Right. And so of all the places, so you've lived in San Francisco, you lived in Washington. What was it about Miami Beach that that uh, captured you and and uh, got you to uh, move there? Yeah, I think. Well, I have always had. Uh, this sort of workaholic, you know, crazy <laughs> intensity uh, for business, which has served me well, but also it, it's tough sometimes, kind of can burn you out. And um, one thing I found about, you know, when I was living in San Francisco, everybody just talked about tech startups all the time. It could be Saturday night and all of your friends that own tech startups or, or work there. And, and so that was energizing for a while and eventually <laughs> became a little bit too much. Uh, obsessive sort of then when uh when I moved to Washington DC all of the talk all the time was politics 
you know, everybody usually worked for the federal government or, or sold to the federal government. And um, then when I, I realized that when I was in Miami for the first time ever, I would, you know, take an afternoon, you know, and, and actually just enjoy the outdoors and everything. And it was, it was much better for me, you know, yeah. <laughs> and you were able to, to escape tech talk and, and, uh, and talk of politics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Just actually live. <laughs> yeah, I know. And enjoy the beach. I, I just remember, uh, you know, uh, walking the streets there and, and, and running on the beach and yeah, it just, it just, the, the, the place had a good vibe. It just, it felt relaxed. Um, yeah, it does. It's yeah. Very interesting, right? A very interesting place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and now in this last year or so, um, more of tech is coming to this area, kind of like what's happening you know, in New Brunswick, we're, we're starting to see people can can work anywhere now. And so you're seeing a little bit more migration to the places that people would just like to live. Um, and, and so that's that's got a, that's kind of brought a good dynamic to the area as well. Um, so tell me a little bit about your family. So uh, how big is your family? Um, yeah, I have a lot of brothers and sisters. Um, well, I have one brother and, and four sisters. My, uh, my mom had me very late in life. So, um, so she, you know, back then she was born in 1929. So, you know, back then it was, it was normal to have a lot of kids. (laughs) And, and so how about your family in, in Miami? Oh, uh, here I have my, my daughter, she's 12 years old and, uh, and my girlfriend, um, who's been with me now for four years. Right. Yeah, I have a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old myself. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I think they, they'd be delighted if we picked up and moved to Miami Beach, as long as we could move their friends with them and hockey and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think I think my daughter would be delighted if if we could move back to New Brunswick. <laughs> when we go back to New Brunswick, she just loves it because she can just, you know, jump on her bicycle and just go and uh it requires a lot less supervision than what we have around here. <laughs> right. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, I, I'd like to talk about kind of your entrepreneurial path before we get into talking more about intra high, but I'm curious, always curious to know with entrepreneurs, what, when, when was the first spark? Like, uh, tell me about the young, the young Jody. Was, was there something when you look back to your childhood or your background that, that sort of indicated that you're going to go on this uh, more entrepreneurial path for your, your career and your life? Um, yeah, I, I mean, if you look at the two sides of, of what it was that brought this together, there was the, you know, the interest in business, and then there was the interest in software development. Um, on the interest in business side, I don't know. I just always had this really strong drive to want to do something. Like uh, I wanted to try to do something big, and um, and so you know, every now and then I'd think, okay, I want to, I want to be a, an astronaut. I want to be this, whatever you know, like every kid does. Um, but I kept gravitating back to wanting to try to do something in business. And, and, and so there were various, um, attempts at it during my childhood. Um, there, you know, there was when I was a, a little kid and, and, uh, started selling, uh, you know, nunchucks at school. There was the, um, uh, a few years later when, uh, sports cards, you know, like hockey cards and all that kind of stuff got big and I got really big into that and made enough money during my that summer to to buy a car and I was only I think 14 or something at the time <laughs> I just bought it you know and parked it in the driveway and waited um 
Uh, a few years later, I started a, um, a like a an ar arcade and pool hall kind of thing. Uh, took a loan, got my mother to co-sign a loan for me. I don't know, I might have been 16 at this point. But just kept like trying, 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 you know, a lot. Uh, I was really, really interested in business. And then on the other side of things, you know, I, I was um, I was left a computer and two weeks with nothing to do when my parents went away on a trip to Bermuda when I was, I think maybe grade three or so. And um, so I just, you know, had a book and, and I read it and just got into trying to figure out how to do something with it. Uh, later that year, I ended up, you know, creating, creating a piece of software that I entered into the science fair, won the science fair, did it again the next year and so on and so on. I just kept, kept like make, creating things on, on the computer at the same time as, you know, I was attempting things in business and I just never really brought the two of those things together <laughs> until nobody really realized back in the eighties that you could make a computer business, you know? Uh, <laughs> I, I keep thinking of that, that car, it must've been tough to, to stare at that thing in the driveway to wait, to be able to drive it. Yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> well, I mean, back then also I was like really into like little motorcycles and stuff. I had like one of those Honda, 50s and so i was like always driving something with a motor you know from the time i was probably grade two or grade three <laughs> so tell me you so you do a business degree at ump when mm -hmm. does when do you start sort of tell me about the early days of really starting off on that, that entrepreneurial adventure your you know your first company and and how that, that all started to evolve yeah it wasn't really um caused by that um what, what ended up happening is I was, I just got interested in doing Microsoft certifications. That was the first thing. And um, I got it in my head that I was going to try to do them faster than anybody had ever done them before. <laughs> just I've, I've always been competitive, you know, especially when I was younger. And um, so I ended up knocking out a bunch of certifications really fast. And uh, there was somebody who was starting a, a tech startup uh, to teach certifications. This might have been like 94, somewhere in there. 94, 95. It was called scholars.com. Uh, this, this guy named Ben Watson. Uh, and he, uh, I, guess, I guess they had called Microsoft or something I hear and, and asked who had a lot of certifications. And, uh, and they pointed them to me. That's, that's how I hear they, they got me anyway. They, but anyway, my phone rang. <laughs> they wanted me to come in for an interview. I, I took, I ended up um, taking the job with them. And just very quickly, I don't know, out of, out of maybe the hundred people or whatever that, that we ended up growing to when I started, there were only a handful of people, but when, um, when we grew to say a hundred people or so I had, I don't know, maybe 90 of them or so that reported to me. So just like ended up taking on more and more and more and more. I think a lot because I just had a lot of like ambition. I was like trying, trying, you know, I would try really, really hard at everything I did. I would work ridiculous hours and I would read all the time and, just had a lot of drive, but through that process, I learned so much, you know, I, I learned almost every aspect of, of the business. The only pieces that really were not within my section were, uh, I think HR and finance, maybe that might've been about it. So, and, and did you, uh, become, uh, an owner in that company or did you remain an employee of that one? No, no, I was, um, I was not, I had no ownership stake in the company at all. And so, so where do you go from there? Uh, well, we sold the company, um, in, uh, in large part due to the software that, that I had created. So we, 
the, the company was really started about, you know, with this idea of teaching people certifications. Um, but I realized there were this, there was this idea um, we could do to make it a lot better for the students. Um, instead of having this static website, we could create this essentially an application that people could log into and it could keep track of their, their learning paths. And, uh, and then a, a whole bunch of other ideas kind of spawned out of that. It was kind of ended up becoming one of the world's first, maybe if not the world's first learning management system. And then the largest e-learning company in the world came along and acquired us. And, um, and then probably, you know, I had a lot of great experience after being acquired as well, but I, I had been fighting to add some capabilities to the software after the acquisition. And this company was, I don't know, two or 3000 people. Um, they, there was one that I thought was a huge opportunity that they just didn't want to bother with, which was making the system work in multiple languages. Um, because they, you know, they said, well, English is the language of business. It doesn't really need, you know, we're the buying, you know, far and away the, the leader, why would we bother putting a bunch of time and effort into that when we could be doing other things? And so I understood their point of view, but, um, decided that I wanted to go and do that on my own. So I, um, I left, uh, started a company called IC global based in Fredericton. And we ended up, um, building that software. Um, we ended up signing, I think Merrill Lynch was our first customer. Uh, we did a nice deal with Merrill Lynch actually. And then the company just took off. We, we were growing, I don't know, 15, 20% every quarter. Um, for, for a couple of years. And then we ended up getting, um, acquired again by the, the same company, but it was, it had gotten quite a bit bigger. They, they had been buying up everybody. And, um, it's, it's really who you see now as Skillsoft, which I think they're still the biggest in the world. So that's, that's what happened with that one. So you realized they realized you were on the right track. Yeah, eventually, you know, I ended up selling to a bunch of their customers and stuff. So they, I guess they figured they just better own it. Right. So where does that lead you next? Um, then maybe, so then I moved down to San Francisco and I worked in, in their head office and I thought it would be great because I'd get exposure to some really great people. Um, there's their um, CEO and CFO and, and some of the people down there were pretty, um, they're kind of like, idols of mine. Um, the, the CFO, for example, went off to be uh, chief strategy officer at Google, for example. Um, so some really good people that had came out of that place. But then uh, I, I think maybe six to nine months after getting there, the dot-com crash happened. And, um, and so they, they closed the entire office. And every, you know anybody that wanted to continue working with the company could move to Waltham, Massachusetts. And um, you know I'd made a lot of money during the acquisition. So I just decided to, uh, to not bother. And I thought, well, I'll just figure out what I'm going to do next. I'll raise some money and everything's going to be great, <laughs> but you can't, turns out you can't raise money in a dot-com crash. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up, um, I moved, uh, I, I stuck around for a couple of years trying, um, maybe a year and a half or so trying, and then eventually decided to, you know, this is a horrible time to try to start a business and, um, thought, well, you know what, maybe I'll go do my business degree. <laughs> That's what happened. I went back and. Oh, um, I see. Yeah. So you, you were, you had a lot of experience, uh, by the time you went back to school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had already had two successful startups by the time. Right. Right. So, and so where does that lead you next? Um, so then after I finished my, 
business degree in 2005, I ended up, I was just thinking about all the different things that I had done. And, and I felt like the, the thing that would have made IC Global even more successful was if I had more direct sales experience, because all, you know, through the pr two previous startups, what would happen is we'd get a big um, prospect and then they would bring me in, you know, I'd be on maybe the third, fourth, fifth call and they bring me in to try to help get them over the line. And that, that was good. That was a good exposure. It gave me some understanding of sales, but I wasn't the guy that had to close it. And I wasn't the person that had to prospect it. And so I thought maybe before I start my next startup, I'll take a job with a company and as an entry-level salesperson, and I'll learn what the job is really all about um, from the, from the other side. And so I, I just sent out, I just looked around and, you know, who are some um, tech startups in the space, you know, where I have experience, which is, you know, e-learning at this point. And I'll, um, you know, I'll go in and, and try to see if I can get a job with them. So I, I did. And the biggest one at the time was this e-learning company called Chalk Media. And, um, and I guess the CEO, uh, it ended up, my resume ended up getting brought to the CEO because he, he was saying, this is a really weird one. They have zero sales experience, but look at the other experience. It's really strange. <laughs> And, uh, and so I guess Stuart said like, well, let's, let's give him a shot. And, and so I, I joined and I did the sales training and then I started, you know, they put me at a desk with a phone and I just started doing my calls and my outreach and all this kind of stuff as I'd been told. And turns out it was really, really hard <laughs> for the first, like, I don't know, two to three months, uh, I, I could barely get a meeting. And it was really hard getting hung up on and all this kind of stuff. And I realized, you know, I, I learned a lot during that time. Then, um, then one day it just clicked, you know, and, and I started selling like, you know, like crazy. It was, um, it really just all of a sudden became easy. And then I, so, I sold the biggest software deal in the company's history. And um, yeah, I guess, you know, just from there though, pretty quickly I, I ended up taking on a whole lot more responsibility. I ended up heading up marketing and heading up um, all of our the people that created all the content and heading up all of our technology and, and so on and so on. Um, became COO and CTO, chief strategy officer, um, and, and then joined the board um, and, and essentially became, became his partner in, in the company. And then we, then we changed the entire business model of the company raised $20 million. Um, uh, we, we ended up having to cut everybody in that old business restart kind of in, uh, as a software company. And then we, uh, yeah, the, the company grew, grew really fast. We got some amazing clients and then we were acquired by Blackberry in 2008. Right. And what did chalk do? Uh, the original chalk sold, um, it sold content. Like basically we would, it was a services business creating content for companies like Samsung and uh, like e-learning courses. Um, what, what it eventually, you know, what we changed it into though was a system that it was, it was basically, we, we, we cut that business entirely and we, we had a software uh, that could push content out to dispersed workforces um, to help them sell more effectively. And, and really 
we call it push cast, but essentially you can think of it like Snapchat or something like that. It would, it was something that we could push something to a dispersed workforce. They could watch it once and then it disappears. So they couldn't share it with competitors and all this kind of things. That was the idea. The looking back on that time doing the sales, uh, did that, that period must've proved pretty valuable for you. Yeah. Yeah. It turned, it, it's great. You know, cause it's really difficult. People tend to funnel you into, you, you know, you're, are you a tech guy or are you a business guy? That's, I feel like that's the way of the world. They're like, are you a plumber or are you a carpenter? You can't be both. And, and I, I think that um, when you take the time to learn both, it gives you some advantages because you can get the respect of, especially if you start a company, you can get the respect of both sides of the house. I guess there's not necessarily sides of the house, but it, it, it does give you the, you know, the more respect of more people, I think. Right. To have that kind of rounded experience, but also that, that grassroots sales experience. Yeah. Well, cause you know, you understand their point of view and you can understand their pain points. And oftentimes I'd say to me, it feels like 90% of the infighting that I've ever seen in any of my companies. It's just because one group doesn't totally understand the other group's point of view. Um, you know, the engineering group is upset because they feel like they're being pushed too much by the sales team and the sales team is, is not understanding why the engineering team isn't moving faster, but if they move faster, then defects start to pop up. You know, there's all these kinds of dynamics and, and sales is like, well, why isn't, why is engineering building things that the customer didn't ask for yet? You know, they're, they're, they're like inventing things when we have a customer right here that's asking for a certain thing. It's just like, they don't understand each other's point of view because they haven't been sitting in that seat. And so I think it, it helps to have all the point of, points of view so you can help kind of, um, you know, just guide things a little bit better. Yeah. And the, the media business is um, really, really experiences that because there's this, there's such a line, a dividing line between the business side of the product and then the editorial side of the product. And yeah. uh, it's, it's a very, very difficult to bridge because it's almost like a church and state thing yeah. where people feel like they can't talk. Yeah. Um, I've worked in a number of small companies that, that, uh, that had that, where that wasn't there and, and the company functioned much, much better mm -hmm. when people still did their own jobs. Right. But, but they understood each other better, uh, understood the goals, of the company, the broader goals of the company. And, uh, yeah, so no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's a, it's a very big problem in media. <laughs> yeah. Constant, uh, uh, misunderstandings between the people selling the product and people creating the product. <laughs> Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I worked with so, a lot of media companies because when I was acquired by BlackBerry, um, they ended up putting me in charge of all content products because uh, our, our product was a content product, but they also put me in charge of all content products, which meant interfacing with all of the like News Corp and all the, the media companies. Um, and so I, I got some exposure to to how you know some of the things that they, they go through and it's it's, a t it's tough <laughs> so so how so you get acquired by research in motion you you start to work for them how does that lead you on the path ultimately to to founding intrahive um well i had you know i had been planning on starting my next startup um you know kind of from the time i got acquired and i always you know i always thought i would do something again um but the timing wasn't great because, you know, we were in the middle of another recession again, the, uh, the 2009, you know, housing crisis. And so I thought, well, you know, why not get in here, you know, make, make a lot of great connections, 
uh, execute as well as I can on the business for, for BlackBerry. I, I really looked up to, to uh, BlackBerry. It was, you know, one of the great Canadian companies, I think, of all time. And, and then, uh, you know, when, when the timing is right, I'll, I'll uh, leave, hopefully leave BlackBerry better than I found it and go off and do my next thing. Um, well, and then uh, during the course of that, I ended up, you know, realizing that there were some, some made some common threads that I kept seeing over and over and over again, where people were having so much problems with, with selling like they, their CRM, you know, people would have these CRMs and they just didn't have a lot of great data in it. And it was just all these kind of common problems that I'd seen through the years. Um, previously having had a, a company where we really, our product was mainly sold to sales teams. And then, you know, again, working at BlackBerry and, and so on. So I decided I was going to uh, jump in uh, really at the end of 2011. Um, Jim Balsilli had, had left uh, and then I, I left the next week. Really? And so what did that next week look like? Um, you know, that. so I, I found a person in Miami where I was living uh, who was going to head up engineering for me so I could focus on raising money and, you know, all the rest. And we ended up, um, he, he said he needed, I think six weeks notice. So he, he was like, uh, I waited and waited and, you know, just kind of did a lot of the, the software, the first software development myself. Um, a lot of the original code is written by me. <laughs> he ended up, um, the, the day he was supposed to start, I get an email saying, sorry, but, um, I've decided to take another job at West at, at a services company, which I'm sure he probably regrets right now. <laughs> if he's listening to this podcast, because he'd be very, very rich. Um, anyway, he, he, um, it, it put me in a, a horrible position because I had been talking to investors and, you know, I was pretty close to getting the money raised and, and all that stuff. So we, I ended up scrambling and realized, well, you know, I should go back to some of the, the superstars that I worked with in Fredericton and, and try to get, uh, some of those people to, to come work for me. It's really, really difficult though, to get somebody to quit a really great job and come work for, for somebody that has no customers, no money raised. And you know, the, the makings of a the very early prototype of a product. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious to know, first of all, I'm curious to know some of those superstars you were able to lure and also what, what made you look back to, to Fredericton? Cause you've been living in the States for a long time and working and building companies down there. What was the uh, what was the impetus to connect back with Fredericton? Uh, well, I spent an awful lot of my life in Fredericton, and every one of my previous startups was primarily based in Fredericton. Uh, this one, I was I was thinking, well, maybe I won't do that remote thing where I'm living in one city and my company's back in Fredericton anymore. Maybe I'll do it in Miami this time. But uh, when when I ran into that issue on my first day, I thought, well, I've got to act quickly here and. Um, the other thing is I just thought it was impossible to, to hire some of these people back in Fredericton because they had such great positions now at these companies, they're quite senior and that why would they ever quit and come work at a startup? So that was the difficulty. Um, but, uh, I managed to convince, um, some of the, you know, some of the people that I, I really, really like to come on board. Right. And so your earlier startups, you'd always maintain that connection to Fredericton, even though oh, you yeah. yourself were based somewhere else. Yeah, I know. I did yeah. a lot of travel back and forth to Fredericton, like right. many, many times a year. Right. So is the core product still pretty much what you originally conceived? Like, so um, for, I'm a, you were a business student, tech savvy. 
I, I'm a liberal arts student. I read a lot of books in college, uh, yeah. <laughs> a lot yeah. of novels. Um, yeah. What's what's the the explanation for people like me about what it is that Interhive does and what's special about the product? The uh, service? So, so it has it has changed um, throughout the years, but uh, you know, essentially, what we we've, we've gotten to now is we realized that there's the CRM is really a system where people put all of their stuff, you know, it puts all the records of who people meet with and it keeps all the records of the meetings that they have and so on. Um, but it's only the ones that people type in and people aren't particularly good at data entry, especially when every hour they spend selling, you know, is, is going to make them closer, closer to their quota. They don't want to be spending a bunch of hours, you know, entering data into a CRM. So we, we realized that, you know, how do you help salespeople reach their peak performance? Um, everybody wants to crush the quota. The more you overachieve on your quota, the more money you make. And, and their sales leaders want the same thing. So we, we felt like, you know, that old adage, should you work harder or you work smarter? Um, work harder just means allow you to put more man hours in. We automate everything into the CRM and we automate all of the intelligence out of it. So, so what it ends up uh, doing is bringing people back about 20% of their workday um, to actually sell more effectively. So that's, that's the work harder piece. And the work smarter piece is we have all of these different types of intelligence that we realize that sell, that help salespeople sell more effectively. One is, you know, it's all of the intel about the person, all of the intel about the company that you're selling to. Um, are they in the news? What are they saying on social? Who in your company might have good relationships with them that you can leverage? All that relationship intelligence. Um, all of the AI intelligence around, like, what are the patterns that are recognized in the data uh, from the best performing salespeople versus you know the average or, or worst performing salespeople, and you're going to find some really interesting patterns there that can help ever you know just kind of lift all boats, as they say. And um, and, and so we just have incredible performance uh, when when the software is adopted by a company. We see huge gains, like huge improvements in the amount of data that people have in their CRM that they can analyze now and get great insights from huge improvements on the intelligence of each salesperson and their ability to hit their, their quota. Um, you know, essentially the, the percentage of people that can hit their quota as a result. Right. In terms of the seed of the idea idea and the development of it, did the, your, your, you know, shore experience selling inform a little bit of the development of that? Yeah. Did you yeah. see some of those inefficiencies? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I saw firsthand, um, you know, how difficult it is to get all of the information into c systems like CRMs, for example. Um, I saw firsthand how difficult it is to do meeting after meeting during a day and actually be prepared for your clients um, to the level that you should be. And and then you'd see people working on strategic accounts where they only have a couple meetings a day. And those people are prepared on a different level. You know, they, they are they fully researched the company. They fully researched the people. They have more engaging conversations and so on. And and I thought, like, how do we bring that to the people who have um, a lot more meetings in a day and a lot more interactions with customers in a day? Right. So, so tell me a little bit about the structure of the company. So you, you're in Miami Beach. Uh, yeah. Are you the only person there? Does anybody else for Interhive work in, in Miami as well? Yeah, we, we have some other people in Miami now. Uh, Eventually, we did figure some of that out, <laughs> um, but it's it's a, a smaller office and, and growing. We have um, our head of people is here, our head of HR, and um, we we do um, yeah we have we have sales down here as well, and we'll we'll continue to add more people down here. 
we're adding people at a really fast pace up in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia as well. Um, I'm sure we're probably stretching the market in that area because we're, I don't know, we're uh, probably two or 300 people in, in those areas at this point. We have um, pretty good sized offices in London, uh, Chicago, and, uh, and then we have a lot of home-based people in San Francisco and Texas and a bunch of other places. And, uh, and Chennai, India also is a pretty big office of ours. We have maybe 40 people there. Where in India? Uh, Chennai. Chennai. So where is that in the country? Um, it's kind of on the, on the East coast of the country. It's a, it's like a beach town kind of, uh, it's a really, really nice city. What happened was one of the first employees that we ever had, he was, um, he was a, a leader in our engineering group. He decided that he, he had a family emergency and needed to go back to Chennai for a bit. And so we took that opportunity and talked about it and said, well, would you like to start an office there? And so that's what he did. So we're, He's been, um, he's stayed down there ever since. And now he has 40 people. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's the range of like, uh, in terms of the kind of jobs that people do there? Is, is there a, a specific yeah. kind of job? Not really. No, it's, we have really everything from engineering leaders, you know, all the way down to, you know, data entry people. Um, and, and then we have, you know, in, we have a lot of good cohesive working together between you know, the team, the engineering teams in the East coast of Canada and, and Chennai as well. Right. And it kind of helps us work around the clock a little bit more as well. You know, so we can, if, if there's something that we have that's really urgent, we want to try to turn something over quickly. Fredericton can start on it. They can hand it over to Chennai uh, at the end of the day and so on. They can hand it back. It's, it allows us to work, you know, 24 hours. Kind of. Right. And so you've got, um, you know, two to 300 between, Halifax, Fredericton, and St. John is that are those the three Atlantic cities? Yeah, I think in total we're around 350 people now. Um, so right. I, I'd say maybe maybe 100 of them are not in Atlantic Canada. Okay, so around total you have around 450. No, sorry, 350 or so in, in total in the company. About 100 of them would would not be in Atlantic Canada. So okay, yeah, so maybe right. 250 in Atlantic Canada, something like right. that. So even with these kind of very dispersed global operations, right, from, you know, London to India to Chicago to Miami, it's mm-hmm. still a very strong Atlantic Canadian uh, company in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's where the majority of our people are. Right. And, and so what, uh, obviously, the, I wanted to chat with you for a while, but, uh, you know, recent, the recent $100 million investment you know, finally said, you got to give Jody a call and find out what the secret is here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what, uh, what, what led to that, uh, that significant investment and what does that mean for your company in terms of its growth trajectory? Yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, it, these things seem like they come out of nowhere, but they t- actually take a long time. <laughs> uh, we raised a seed round, um, in 2012 or so, and then we raised an a round and we raised a B round and a B what they call a B prime round, which is sort of a second part to a B round. And then, and then we did a C round, but the, the C round, uh, we started working on that. We started working on materials for it. Um, what they call a data room preparation and, and putting together our call lists and everything back in probably December or so. <laughs> and then we, we really started, uh, all of the outreach to the investors in around maybe the end of February. Uh, we had, we, we got multiple term sheets. We selected who we wanted to have as our investor, I believe maybe in April. And then there was like a, a 
month or two process where they go through called due diligence, where they, you know, they check everything. They have experts uh, that they hire uh, to you know dig in on how you do your AI and how you do your legal and you know your how your books are and you know how you do people operations and what benefits do you offer people and how that compares with other companies and everything really they spent a lot of money and a lot of man hours um analyzing and making sure they want to go through with it and then uh, we successfully completed it maybe a month ago right right and so, and so what will that mean in terms of you know employment growth growth of the company we we have uh, a lot of i mean we've been even prior to the close we knew it was going to close and so we we started ramping up hiring um really at an incredible pace it's our plans are to you know just about not quite but just about double um every year for the next couple of years so you know you, you need to have a lot of people that go along with that we we have huge increases that we need to make to the sales and marketing team every year um and and pretty large increases that we need to make to the engineering team uh, every year and then obviously all the administration and everything that goes along with it as well and and you're you're working with companies in 90 or so com- countries uh yeah about 100 countries we have a we have a single customer that has uh that we're in about 90 countries with there's there's um PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, is a huge customer of ours where we have over 100,000 users and uh something like 90 90 some countries right so it, it, it in different languages or is this all like are, are there language challenges around uh, the rollout of your product or is it kind of language neutral yeah we our software works in in multiple languages and so we don't really have any any issues around that um but i guess that's sort of uh where we came from you know we 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 don't um our, one of the things we tried to do with our software as well is is try to make it a system where you didn't have to go log in and actually look at an interface hmm. that it was gonna it was kind of gonna be the system that that would do everything for you so we without you having to go into an interface potentially it could it could sync all the data into the crm for you and, and all that kind of stuff too too so it just kind of makes it a little bit easier when it comes to languages right you were able to grow during the pandemic. Why is that? Uh, well, we we didn't for the first quarter of 2020. We ended up getting pretty much a zero for the first time in our company's history. Um, and then we repositioned. We like kind of figured out, well, what is it about our software that can actually help people during a pandemic? And, and we started realizing there were a lot of these things that we could actually help drive uh, performance for companies that were hurting. And so uh, that just made all the difference. All of a sudden, you know, everything started uh, flowing like crazy. I think we, you know, we grew uh, again about almost double during the pandemic. I really appreciate your time. I'll just keep you a couple more minutes. I'm curious talking to you um, about just, you know, the, the, the kinds of things that people could learn, entrepreneurs should learn listening to this interview with you, right? And I've heard about how hard you worked. I heard about that experience of just rolling up your sleeves and trying to sell and yeah. and what you would gain from that um w- in terms of how why you've been a successful uh fundraiser in terms of raising money uh for for the company what, what's been some of your secret there um i think it's probably helped a lot to just keep a really strong network you know just um continually 
you know, we spent a lot of time going in and meeting investors when we didn't really need anything from them. We would, you know, I'd be in New York um, on business and I would, I'd make, you know, a few different um, meetings with, with different investors, just pop in and give them an update. Here's how we're doing. Oh yeah. Are you guys raising money now? No, actually we're not, you know, and um, just keeps, keeps people thinking about you. It's, it's branding in a sense. And then whenever it's time to raise money, that makes that a little bit easier. Right. Because you've kept those relationships going. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any, any, any other uh, ad- advice for people building, you know, tech companies or other companies in, in uh, Atlanta, Canada? Um, I think the, you know, the biggest thing that served me well over the years is just like, you have to be, you have to be willing to do the things that other people wouldn't want to do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, don't become a, like, don't start a startup because you want to be a boss or something. <laughs> that's, that's not gonna, it's not gonna be as fun as you think. <laughs> that's, it, you know, if your if your idea is, is that that's, that's not the way to do it. Um, you, cause you really, the job is incredibly hard. Um, it's, it's incredibly hard to be one of the first people at a startup. Um, whether you're the CEO or whether you're one of the engineers, you're working ridiculous hours and, um, and you, you, you don't see the light of the, at the end of the tunnel for a long, long time. Uh, we got so many no's before we got yeses on every front on employees. We want to hire on customers. We wanted on, on, uh, investment money. And so, you know, be ready for a lot of hard times before you can get to the good ones. Right. And, and you've also made a decision at a couple of points to go back to school, right. After you, mm-hmm. after you became successful. So you went to UNB, uh, and then you all, you didn't touch on this, but I know that you also went back and did uh, a master's degree at Harvard. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things I've always believed in, uh, was trying to spend all the time that I can, um, learning something new, whatever that next thing is that I think could, could help. And so, you know, even when I'm gone on a walk or, you know, going on a bike ride or going to the gym, I usually have headphones listening to an audiobook or whatever. And, and, you know, I did went back for my degrees twice, um, with <laughs> no obvious benefit on why, why you would do that at that point. Um, but it was, I did learn some things, you know, and I met some great people. Um, one of the people I met at Harvard was, he was one of the original people at MySpace, and he helped me write some of the original code in a way that I, I wouldn't have been able to do it myself. So I think, you know, you got to, I think just continuous learning, it just makes such a difference, whether it's in a post-secondary or whether you, you can't do that because of your life. And you pick up a book, you know, that's, that's another great alternative. Right. Well, my last question for you, cause you've been so generous with your time is, uh, what do you miss about Fredericton? Cause it's uh, probably been a while since you've yeah. been here, has it? Yeah. Really be- before the pandemic, it's the pandemic kind of locked me out for the most part. So, um, the, the things I, I loved about Fredericton was, um, just the, I love the people. It was really a, such a nice close knit community. Um, uh, I loved, the um the waterfront it's it's so nice to just have like this walking trails that they preserved all the way along the water i I loved like walking and biking along the the water it's just i don't i don't think people i don't know if people who live there realize how special that is but in most places people buy up all the waterfront and you can't actually get access to it so i think that's that's a really incredible thing um just I, i love all the the support that i've always gotten through the years people have taken chances on me and and, uh, you know, people like Mike Waugh and J- Jacob and, you know, Paul Graham and a bunch of and a whole bunch of these early folks who quit perfectly good jobs to come <laughs> work with me, um, gave me a lot of 
great support. I mean, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll never forget Fredericton for sure. Do you have plans to be able to get back soon for a visit or is it still too early to talk about that? Probably in, probably in the next, um, like hopefully by the end of this summer, I'm hoping that these restrictions lift. Cause I, you know, the, the whole thing about, um, quarantining and all that kind of stuff, it's just not possible with the demands that are on me right now. <laughs> Yeah, I have a, a family member just came up from uh, from Florida, from the Tampa area, and had to quarantine with her, her two kids for a couple of weeks. Uh, but yeah, so there are those issues. <laughs> you'd be you'd be stuck in a house or a cottage for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's it's hard, you know. And if, the, if part of my purpose is to go out and meet people and like, say, uh, you know, see my family and see our, our our people in our office and stuff like that, and I can't actually do that, it doesn't really help. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very, uh, thanks very much, uh, Jody, for chatting with me, and we hope we can get you back to New Brunswick soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Great to meet you. You've been listening to the latest episode of Home Office on the Huddle Podcast Network. Thanks, Jody, for the great chat. Huddle Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legere, and Cherie Sletson. You can subscribe to the show on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend us to a friend. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you again soon.